Good evening. We've been looking at the prophets on Sunday morning Bible class, and I thought it would be nice to uh, take the freedom that Brent gives me to go out and study whatever I like to study, uh, to spend a little bit of time looking at some other prophets that were prophesying around the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, so we're going to try to look at the prophet Zephaniah tonight. And if you're wondering where Zephaniah is in your Bible, uh, it's four books back from Matthew. So uh, you can look in your table of contents if you need to, to find that book. Uh, But we're going to be doing a little bit of an overview of Zephaniah uh, to help us with our studies in the prophets. Um, The prophets don't get a lot of credit. Uh, I don't think, in, in Christianity. I don't think we spend a lot of time talking about the prophets or seeing how important the prophets are to us as Christians. Um, Brent's been going through the book of Isaiah, and uh, he's been showing us uh, the value of... He's been going through the book of Mark and showing us uh, the value of the book of Isaiah in Mark. Uh, you remember... Uh, how the introduction of Mark starts out as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. So he starts out his gospel talking about uh, the prophet Isaiah speaking of the gospel and the the good news. Uh, When we get to the book of Acts, we read about uh, Peter uh, preaching a sermon from the prophet Joel at the beginning of the book of Acts. And then in uh, in chapter 3, in the second uh, sermon that he has, he talks about how all the prophets from the days of Samuel have talked to us about these days that are coming. So the prophets have a lot of value. Uh, we need to study them and look at them more than just some extra information in the Bible that we can maybe read through in our yearly studies and just blow right past uh, just to get to the good stuff in the New Testament. The prophets show us who God is and how God feels. Uh, We get a lot of words from God in the prophets about His people and about the nations around them. As I said earlier, Mark uses uh, Isaiah. Peter uses the prophets. And uh, I wanted to look at one text in particular that really gets me excited about studying the prophets. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter said, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that they have na- that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Now, doesn't that get you excited about the idea of studying the prophets? I mean, in this text, Peter tells us that the salvation we have received was written about by these prophets. And they were curious about when these things were going to happen. They were writing these things down about what was going to take place in the first century, not knowing when or exactly how this was all going to unfold. And can you imagine their excitement when they see Jesus come onto the scene and when they see all of these things start to be fulfilled? These are things in which angels were curious about. 
And they all saw this unfold before them. And and we now read the New Testament and we see these uh, preachers of the good news through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit reveal to us how those prophets were talking about the things they're seeing. So whenever we study the prophets, we can get excited about it. Because we can find in the prophets news that is good for us today. So what are the prophets about? Uh, If you've been with us in the Sunday morning class, you've been studying with us about Ezekiel and uh, Jeremiah and seeing a lot of information about the judgment. There's a lot of judgment, right? Uh, it's, it's, It's books that are full of judgments from God against His own people, Israel and Judah. Uh, You know, all the time He is pointing out their flaws, their errors, uh, what they have done against Him, and how they deserve some judgment and some repayment for their evils. He also judges the nations, and talks extensively about all the sins of the nations that are around uh, Jerusalem and Israel. But intermixed in the prophets, we have the good news, right? We have the grace that was to be yours, as Peter says. We have uh, those glimmers of hope mixed in for us to see what our salvation is really all about. So we can get excited about this, even though in the midst of the prophets we have all these judgments, we also have some encouraging words for us as well. When we get to the book of Zephaniah, I think we can look at this book not as just another one of the prophets, but as a prophet that's very unique and very interesting in his own way. Uh, If there's any prophet that you want to study... In order to uh, understand what the prophets are about, Zephaniah is a good prophet. Uh, Whenever we look at Zephaniah, we see in verse 1 the background. What's going on during that time? And it gives us a reference back to earlier in the Old Testament. It tells us Zephaniah prophesied during the days of Josiah. Josiah is the king during Zephaniah's prophesying. This was a good king. This was probably one of the best kings of Judah. This is a king who brought about major reformation in Israel. So much so that it was said as they kept the Passover that the Passover was never kept like the days of Josiah all the way back to to Samuel. You have to go back to Samuel to see them keeping the Passover like they kept it under Josiah. So he created major reformation, which is substantial given his circumstances. Josiah reigned after Israel was gone. The the northern tribes had been wiped out by Assyria, and Judah is in this form of reformation because... Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, had been an evil king. He was one of the worst kings that that Israel had ever seen. Reigning for 55 years, the majority of his reign was awful. Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, reformed things and, and got Israel, it seemed like, on the right track. 
Well, Manasseh came in and destroyed all of that work. Creating an Israel that was evil. He said, it says that he seduced Judah to do things that are evil. He brought about so much idolatry. They were bringing idols into the temple. Josiah had to reform major issues in Judah. And Zephaniah is preaching during that time. Josiah reigned for 30 years. And at the end of his reign, after he died, it's going to be 20 years before Jerusalem is destroyed. So the preaching of Zephaniah was likely heard by those who are destroyed in the city of Jerusalem. Imagine for just a moment. You're there during the reign of Josiah. You've got a great king. But everyone is doing evil. They have gotten used to evil. It's been generations of immorality before Josiah. And now there's this good king who's trying to bring about all this change. And you're seeing some change going on. But as we see after... Josiah, their hearts are not turning to God fully. They're making an outer change, an outer reformation. But inside, their hearts don't desire God. That's the, the, the scenario that, that we get whenever we come to the book of Zephaniah. In the book of Zephaniah also, we have that Zephaniah was a descendant of Hezekiah. You look at verse 1, you see that he's a descendant of Hezekiah. So, whenever we try to figure out who the prophet is preaching to, we see that he's of the royal lineage, and he's probably preaching to some of the leaders of that day. So, what would you say to the leaders of Jerusalem, the leaders of Judah, that is in the situation and in the environment that we just went through. What would you say to them if you had a chance to speak to them? You might want to simplify things, right? You might want to say things in a way that's simple, that's repetitive, that, that, that really gets the point across to them what they really need to know to make sure they all can grasp how much change needs to happen to them to avoid any kind of a judgment. That's what we see in Zephaniah. This is a three-chapter book, okay? That's pretty short as far as books of the Bible go. Three chapters isn't too bad. I encourage you, after this study is over, to read it all uh, because we're not going to read every bit of it. But whenever you read it, it's important to understand the structure, kind of how it's laid out. There's two mirrored sections. As, as we often see in Hebrew literature, there's parallelism. Uh, the first section is from chapter 1, verse 2, all the way down to chapter 2, verse 3. And then the next section is chapter 2, verse 4, all the way down to the end of the book. Okay, So there's two sections, and they parallel each other. The first section talks about the same things as the second section does. But the second section adds to the first section. It builds on it and gives you more information about it. In each of the sections, we have a lot of judgment. It's to be expected, right? In the prophets, there's going to be a whole lot of judgment. And then, it's not just judgment. It's 
judgment repeated three times. So in the first section you have judgment, and then you have judgment, and then you have judgment, and then they're kind of broken up. And then you have a little bit of hope, and then you have judgment, 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 and then a little, uh, a lot more hope at the end. So that's the breakout of how this whole book is laid out to help you understand as we work our way through it. But whenever we read the prophets and we read all this judgment, right? I mean, I just kind of laid out the book for you. It's like eighty-five percent judgment, right? <laughs> We get kind of depressed about that, right? Who wants to read, we're doomed, we're doomed, we're really doomed, change before you're doomed. (laughs) You know? But whenever we read this, we need to understand that the judgment is important. It's good for us to hear that God judges Imagine yourself living in a world where God does not provide judgment. Where everyone's allowed to do what their heart desires and they do all kinds of evil that they can come up with. Sounds like the time of Noah, right? Imagine being alive during the, t- during the time of Noah. Would we want to live in a world like that? Where there's no judgment, where there's no justice... Where the good are being killed off by the bad. And there's no repayment for their evil. We wouldn't want to live in a world like that. And God shows us that He is the God who sets those things right. In the descriptions of judgment. But not only does He judge, there's also hope. At the end of the first section, you just have a little glimmer of hope. And then at the end of the last section, you have an amazing statement of hope. And this is going to be two parts because I can't go through all of this in one time. We're going to look at the major section of hope next time. I'm going to give you a glimmer this time and then we're going to look at the major section next time. Okay, so whenever we look at the book, we're going to we're going to work our way through looking at the first judgment in the first section and the first judgment in the second section. And we're going to work our way through the first judgment that we see in the book is all of the earth being judged. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the of the earth, declares the Lord. What does that sound like? That sounds like Noah, doesn't it? That sounds like Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, where he says, I will wipe out man, animals, creeping things, and birds. But notice, there's also the fish are going to be wiped out. In the days of Noah... The fish, you imagine, survive the flood. <laughs> they don't have to protect the fish, right? The fish don't come onto the ark. Uh, the fish are okay. But in this judgment, God's wiping out all His creation, including the fish. He's going to wipe it all clean is kind of the picture of this judgment. He's wiping everything out to start over. That's the picture that He gives us. Of this, of this judgment. God is going to 
bring about a total cleansing, a total purification. In the second section, he gives us a little bit more detail about what he's intending. Okay? In chapter 2, verses 4 through 15, he summarizes for us the judgments of five nations. But they're really kind of in four different sections. Do we have any Philistines, Moabites, Ammonites, Cushites, or Assyrians today? Anybody seen any of those around? No. Okay. Those nations are the nations that he's talking about judging in this, in this section of the book. The Philistines are to the west of Israel. And they are the, the nation that is dwelling pretty much in the promised land throughout Israel's existence, right? They're constantly a thorn in their side, so to speak. And they were supposed to be, Israel was supposed to be dwelling in the land of the Philistines. They were supposed to have conquered it, but they never did. The Moabites and the Ammonites weren't enemies. They were really supposed to be allies, right? They're descendants of Lot. Israel was told not to attack them. They were supposed to leave their land alone. And they are to the east of Israel. Then you have the Cushites. They're fascinating because it's one verse. Uh, God's going to bring the sword against them, right? But we never hear about the Cushites in, in Israel's history. I mean... There's the Queen of Sheba from you know, Ethiopia, which is Cush, essentially. There's not a whole lot of information about them interacting with Israel at all. But they're to the south of Israel uh, and, and a long ways away. But then there's also the Assyrians to the north. Those are the powerhouse, right? That's the nation that is conquering the world, so to speak, during this time. So you have a nation that's an enemy, a nation that's allies, a nation that's obscure, and a nation that is the central point of the world during that time. And God's judging them all. They're all receiving judgment. Instead of going to the second judgment now, we're going to skip to the third judgment. Okay, Because the third judgment is a repeat of the first judgment. Remember I said there's three judgments. Well, the first judgment is everybody and everything's going to be judged. The third judgment is, again, all mankind will be judged. Okay, So let's look at this judgment briefly before we go back to the second judgment. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14 through 18, the text says... The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. The NIV says the mighty warrior sounds a battle cry. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and, a, and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I'd like to go ahead and read the second section. Well, uh, let's finish this first, sorry. Uh, it's broken into two, two uh, slides. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. 
Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Sounds a lot like the first judgment. Uh, let's, let's read the second section and the third judgment. Chapter 3, verse 8. He says, Therefore wait for Me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. You see how there's a lot of parallels uh, with these two texts. Uh, All the earth will be consumed in the fire of my jealousy, essentially, right? In the great day of the Lord. The great day is referred to 20 times in these three chapters. This is a day of judgment that he's talking about. What day did that happen? We just said that those nations aren't here anymore, right? (laughs) So what day was it? It's not necessarily a specific day. This is talking about a time period when God is going to bring about the judgment of these nations. Babylon comes in and wipes these nations out over the course of years. Imagine this. Imagine this day. The the destruction. The sorrow. The sadness. Imagine the city that we're in leveled. With nobody left. It becomes a desolate place. A place where there's just animals roaming about. It's hard for us to even imagine such destruction. But God is talking about the complete destruction. He even clearly points out to us that Nineveh is going to be completely laid waste. And it is. It's completely laid waste. There's nothing else left of it. God is bringing about extreme judgment upon all these nations. Why? Because God is jealous. Did you notice that? His anger is is stemmed from His jealousy. He's jealous of the nations. Their idolatry is something God is jealous of. He's not happy with them any more than, as we're about to see, He's happy with His own people. The second judgment is the judgment against His own people. Now we might be tempted to think, as we study through Scriptures, there's always this remnant, right? There's always going to be a remnant of of judgment. And as we're seeing all the earth is going to be destroyed, we know there's got to be a remnant. Who's going to be the remnant? Well, it's got to be God's people. It's got to be Israel. Israel will surely be spared from the judgment. But no. The second judgment lets us know that God's not okay with Israel's sin either. Israel is not okay to go about doing the sins like the rest of the world does. And they're not just going to get a little tap on the hand and allowed to go about doing whatever they want to do like some spoiled little child. 
God doesn't handle His own people like that. Look at what is said in verse 4 of chapter 1. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests among, uh, along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the, to the host of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him, be silent for the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His, His guests. You see, the judgment here is against His own people. He will stretch out His hand against His own people for their sins. He is preparing them as a sacrifice, it says. Look at verse 12. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good nor will He do evil. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. The mighty warrior cries aloud. So Judah and Jerusalem are not going to escape the judgment that is being pronounced against all the world. God's not going to just ignore the sins of His own people. God can't do that. Those, as we said before, who are doing evil in the nation, those who are oppressing the good and killing the good, must be served judgment. And God will do that even against His own people. There's no double standard or partiality with God. He's not going to allow people that are His treasured possession to go and be sinful and do whatever it is is on their heart. That's just not the kind of God that He is. And that's the picture we get from this judgment. They're going to be like a sacrifice to Him. He's going to, to, to allow them to be put to death. Listen to the, the second section. Verse 1 of chapter 3. He's just finished judging Assyria. And he says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. Is he still talking about the Assyrians? If, you, if you're reading through this text, you might get to chapter 3 and, and you might think, wait a second, 
Who's he talking about here? There's no one named, right? So everyone is reading this book and they're seeing Assyria is judged. And then chapter 3, verse 1, they read, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord or draw near to her God. And they're like, oh wait, who, where do we, what are we talking about here? This sounds like it's talking about Jerusalem. Well, that's exactly what it's talking about. God is writing it this way. So that as you're reading through the judgments of all these nations, you go through and you look at the Philistines and they're judged. And you're like, yeah. You go through the Moabites and Ammonites. Yeah, judge them too. And then you get to the Cushites and you're like, okay, yeah, I guess judge them too, right? And then you get to the Assyrians. Yes, judge them too. And then woe to the oppressing city and the rebellious city. Yeah, judge them too. Whoa, wait a second. (laughs) The city that is supposed to draw near to the Lord? Wait a second. You might not even catch it till verse 5. Look at verse 5 through 7. It says, The Lord within her is righteous. The Lord within her is righteous. Oh, okay. Well, it has to be talking about Jerusalem. He does know injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the injustice that the unjust know, knows no shame. I have cut off nations, their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, Surely you will fear me, you will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. You see this picture of their God being good and just and pure and true and right toward them. Doing everything for them as though they are a good city, as though they are good people. But He knows that they're evil. And he's going around and he's judging all these other nations. And they're seeing these nations be judged. And they're thinking, oh yeah, we must be alright because God's wiping out all these nations for us. Instead of thinking, wow, these nations are being judged because of the way they're sinning. And we've been following these nations all along. Maybe we should rethink the way that we're living. They just completely missed the point. Of God judging these nations. Their description is horrible. Throughout this text, we have a number of sins of Judah that are deplorable. They're awful. They're something that we don't ever want to see, right? I mean, their leaders are like lions or wolves. Their priests and prophets are profaning what is holy. They're doing violence to the law. They're using God's blessings to pursue more sins. The more God blesses them, the more they take advantage of the blessings to go about sinning. They're complacent. They think God's not going to do anything evil or good against them. And they go about doing whatever they want to do. They are idolaters. We saw that in Ezekiel. uh, Described to us very clearly. They are idolaters like the nations around them. 
And they're not learning from the nations around them that are getting wiped out. This is the judgment. This is why the judgment is given against Judah and Jerusalem. Now I want to ask the question, what about us? Whenever we look at these things, we see the evil that that they're doing, and we think, man, those people are awful. I can't believe the way they're taking advantage of God and the way God is acting toward them. It's as though He's allowing this sin to continue as though somehow they're going to turn things around. But they never do. And we just think, man, those guys are such knuckleheads. What are they doing? What about us? Is there a message for us in all of this judgment? Is there something that we can learn from the judgments against Israel, from these warnings? I think there is. I think there is the same six things for us to learn. Our leaders, which I'm very thankful for in this congregation, must be very careful not to become like those leaders were. Those leaders were devouring the sheep. They were lords over Israel, telling Israel what to believe and seducing them into idolatry and sin. Our leaders must be careful not to allow sin into the camp and to make sure that they are setting the right example for the sheep and showing them where to go. The leadership plays a huge role in the direction of the people. We see that in Manasseh. His influence was awful. And the judgment is going to be awful for those who are led astray by the leaders. Our teachers, the prophets and priests of our day, the evangelists, the teachers, have to be careful as well. We can't do violence to the law. It's interesting, in Josiah's time, they found the law in the temple. They found, I think, the book of Deuteronomy so that they could see exactly what it was that God originally told them to do. But they found a way to overlook the things they didn't like. Are there books of the Bible that the teachers never teach on? maybe. <laughs> There's books of the Bible that maybe we overlook or that we think are insignificant. Well, as teachers, we need to be willing to go there. We need to be willing to look at those books to find out God's message for us. Brent's dad, Barry, uh, often uses the phrase, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste inspiration paper. I've heard him say that in a number of sermons of his. And that's absolutely true. If we're passing by books of the Bible, or we're passing by sections and not trying to find what's in there for us, we're doing violence to the law. We're overlooking things that may be valuable for us to take away to learn about the nature of God, to learn about our responsibilities toward Him. Number three, we can take the blessings of God for granted. We don't have to to think very hard to think about all the blessings that we're given in this nation and at this time. 
God doesn't give us these blessings so that we can go about doing the things that we want to do or the things that seem right to us so that we can spend our time enjoying ourselves in this life. Our blessings, as we see God blessing us, our blessings should be a reminder to us of how much we want to do for God who gave it to us. A reminder of how much God loves us that He would bless us with His Son, the ultimate blessing for us. Number four, we, can't, we can think that God won't do anything like they did. We can, we can look around and see the sins of those all around us, and we can start to think, well, they're not receiving judgment for their sins, and they're getting away with it. And we can become complacent in our own sins. We can become complacent in our understanding of who God is and our our desire to have a relationship with God. How would we like it if we had if if our spouse did everything we wanted? They came they came through. You know, this is during a time of reformation uh, of Israel. They they were worshiping like they were supposed to worship. They were doing everything that they were supposed to do. Imagine your spouse doing everything they're supposed to do, everything that seems like it's required in your relationship, but they don't really love you. They don't really want to know much about you. They don't really care about what your plans are, about what your goals are. They just don't really care. There's something missing in that. And that's what Israel had done. They had had gotten to the point where they were doing the things that they were commanded to do, but they didn't really care about doing what God desired most. Seeking Him. Loving Him. Worshiping Him with their heart. They had lost the desire for God and become complacent. We can do the same thing. We can become complacent. We can think, well, I'll show up at 10.30 and then I'll, I'll head out about 11.30 on Sunday morning and I'll get my God, God worship in and then I'll go on home and I'll go back to doing the things that I love to do because I've done the things that are required of me. And we're complacent. And we're thinking everything's okay because I've done what God asked me to do But we don't seek God. We don't desire God. We don't love Him and have a passion for Him and a desire to know Him and to get closer to Him. And we can idolize like the nations that are around us. We don't see a lot of those figures, right? But how do we see idolatry in the world around us? Think for a second about someone that you know that's not a member of the church, someone that is is in the world. Think about what they idolize. Think about what they spend time thinking about, right? What is it that they always want to talk to you about (laughs) that's on their mind all the time? Is Is it the new house they're looking for? Is it the car they're looking for? Is it the boat they're looking for? The hobby they're enjoying? Is it the relationships that they're in? We can idolize all of these things, right? We can put all of these things at the center of our life. As though they are the most important things in our life. Uh, Brent just did a lesson about numbers where all Israel is gathered around the tabernacle and they're facing the tabernacle as though that, that is the center of their life. 
Imagine replacing the tabernacle with your big house, with your boat, with your car, with your hobby. And then you just take the tabernacle and you just put it outside the camp over here. And yeah, we go there sometimes. But when we wake up in the morning, we're looking at that boat. We're looking at that whatever it is. That's the center of my life. That's how we idolize. That's how we focus our lives around something that's not God. We see it everywhere around us. Everyone around us is looking at everything else but God. And we can do the same thing. We can fall into the same idolatry as the nations around us. We have to be careful of that. We need to learn from the judgment of Israel. Israel didn't learn from the judgments of the nations around them. But we need to learn from the judgments of Israel. Israel is God's people. But God's people were the first to be judged. And we will as well. And we better make sure that we're, we're paying attention to what the prophets have to tell us about their judgment, lest we fall into the same traps that they fell into. There's a warning given here that's intended to provoke a response from the people. And that's in chapter 2. It tells us what the response is. At the end of the first section, this is the good part, right? I'm going to give you a glimmer of the good part before the next sermon where it's going to be mostly the good part. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. You see the desire of God for His people to gather together, to join together, and seek the Lord. Your desire in life is to pursue God, to seek Him. He is everything. We put Him first, right? Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We have to turn to God and seek Him with all our heart. And perhaps we'll, we'll avoid the judgment that we deserve through the great sacrifice of His Son. We can all enjoy the hope that's talked about in chapter 3. If you can't wait till two weeks from now, read the book and look at chapter 3. It's exciting, it's encouraging, and I encourage you to do that. If you're here this evening and you haven't received the blessings that, that God has provided to allow for you to, in, to avoid the judgment that we all deserve... You can, you can partake of those blessings. You can become one of God's children. And you can make your life right and change your heart to focus and seek after Him. If you need to make that change, please do. Please come forward.